Hi, I'm Lauren. Hi, I'm Kelly, and welcome to The Millennial Minimalists. We are two Canadian millennials and minimalists on a mission to live more with less. And together, our goal is to inspire you to design a simpler, more intentional life. Hi, everyone. Today, we are talking about a big picture solution to help resolve the burnout epidemic and inspire leaders to foster happier and healthier workplaces. And to lead this conversation, I am speaking with one of our all-time favorite guests, best-selling author Hamza Khan, who is most widely recognized for his first book titled The Burnout Gamble. Lauren and I originally interviewed Hamza back in 2019 in episode 56, where we spoke about the 12 stages of burnout and tips on how to manage it on our own. And then in 2020, in episode 70, I spoke with Hamza for a second time where we delve into the link between burnout and leadership and briefly touched on solutions. And today, Hamza is here for a third time to share insights from his latest book titled Leadership Reinvented, which points to traditional leadership as the root cause of burnout and aims to reinvent leadership to put an end to this global phenomenon. You will learn that self-care is not enough and how leaders can and should do more. And in Leadership Reinvented, Hamza shares examples of what some of the world's most effective leaders and organizations are doing today to empower themselves and their workers. And together, Hamza and I bring awareness to how reinventing leadership is an imperative solution to reducing burnout and building healthy and successful company cultures. Whether you run an organization, work in a management role, are an employee, or you are on the path to becoming a leader into the future, this discussion is for you. Discover the importance of effective leadership in the modern workplace and be inspired by Hums' strong roadmap for the leaders of today and tomorrow. Kelly, my friend. Hey, Hamza, how are you? I am well. I'm not not good. I'm not great. I'm just okay. You know, yeah. I'm at that point in the pandemic where as an introvert who enjoyed the first bit of the pandemic and the isolation and the solitude. Mm-hmm. If it's getting to me, I can only imagine what it's doing for my more extroverted fellow human beings. And so I'm uh, close to my breaking point. I feel like it. Yeah. I mean, I I appreciate your honesty. It's interesting because I find that when I'm asking people that question, how are you? People are actually more open about how they really are, which is really nice. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, someone asked me recently, like, how are you doing? And uh, to be honest, I'm actually doing quite well. But I also expressed that, yeah, I have my moments where I, I, I do feel down and I try mm-hmm. to shake it uh, and I'm yeah. constantly trying to shake it. And I'm starting to realize that that's because of my upbringing. I grew up in a family where it was like, if you ever felt like off, like, no, 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 you shake it off. Like You shake it off. Yeah. I think that was a missed opportunity for us to bust into some Taylor Swift. Yeah, exactly. Shake it off. Yeah. But um, no, no, I get it. I, I like, I'm, uh, I too am thriving right now to, to the extent that I feel guilty about it, where I feel like if the current conditions were to persist for another two years, it could be life-changing in terms of the opportunities that I'm getting. I feel like the world is sort of bending in my favor, but I'm sure we're going to get into it with the podcast. Uh, you know, one of the big, big motivators to write the book was, uh, was a health scare very close to home with my dad, who is having a really tough go of the pandemic, deemed non-essential, his business is failing. And so there's a real urgency that I feel for people to help to move this forward, even though should things continue the way they are, Kelly and Hamza individually will benefit. Some people are thriving. Other people are going through a really tough time. But at the end of the day, I think all of us are struggling in ways because we are creatures that need to feel connected and we aren't getting mm-hmm. that sense of connection right now. So No, not at all. 
So that's the challenge, but it's so great to see you, Hamza. Like I always, I think, man. I think, always. You know, and congratulations on your second book. It releases. I mean, we're recording this before it releases, but your book releases on March 9th. Super, super exciting. We actually, the last time I spoke to you, you alluded to a new important project that you're working on. <laughs> and so when you emailed me, I was like, "Yes, it's finally here." And if you this can, is it, yeah. Yeah. And if you can believe it, our second interview was March of 2020, just before everything shut down. It was our second interview. And I should know, it's actually the second of two of our most popular episodes to date. So what's the first? The first was our first episode. (laughs) And so I know that our listeners are just as excited to have you back as I am. So to give our listeners some background, In our first interview, we discussed the 12 stages of burnout and how we can manage burnout in episode 56. And in our second episode, in episode 70, we talked about the link between burnout and company culture. And we mentioned the World Health Organization's definition of burnout as chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. And we discussed the problems with traditional leadership and just touched on this big picture solution. And so today I'm looking to share your insights from your new book, Leadership Reinvented, including the actionable strategies that can help leaders and organizations become more successful, but also foster happier and healthy work cultures. And so to start things off, I'm hoping that you can briefly share the experiences that inspired your research on burnout and leadership and motivated you to write Leadership Reinvented. Oh my goodness. Wow. 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 I, uh, I'm really excited to dive into this with you and all the listeners who, by the way, my favorite listeners, and I'm not just saying that the evidence is here in the fact that we're doing part three of this back by popular demand, but really by a true desire to want to connect with the listeners of millennial minimalists. Y'all reach out to me all the time by email, LinkedIn, social. It's just, I feel like I found my people. And so, so Kelly, thank you so much for allowing me to, to return here. I feel like a, a third member of the, of the podcast almost. I'm part of the honorary family. This is, so, this is so great to be back. Okay, so why I wrote The Burnout Gamble and why I wrote Leadership Reinvented. So The Burnout Gamble very much spawned from an experience that I had. If you've listened to episode one and two that we've done with the Millennial, millennial Minimalists, I I experienced severe occupational burnout back in 2014, and that resulted in me being quarantined at home, confused, angry, and feeling like I had lost a big part of my identity because so much of my identity was tied up in being productive. But here I was listening to doctors telling me that I could no longer work at the levels that I previously did. I could no longer be as intense in my work and my approach to life as I was. It was very hard for me to hear. And so in my desperation for answers, I started researching First, my symptoms, which led me to discover that I had, in fact, burned out. And what I stumbled upon in the discovery of burnout was that, uh, first of all, it was a very frightening discovery that we were sitting on a major problem that was getting very little attention. And it wasn't just about occupational burnout. It was the underlying problem. If burnout is um, a runny nose, then the, the underlying problem, if like if burnout is a symptom, the underlying sickness is stress. And the World Health Organization, and I've said this, I think, twice before on the podcast, it's the health epidemic of the 21st century. So that's what inspired me to write The Burnout Gamble, Kelly. Mm -hmm. Now, what inspired me to write Leadership Reinvented? Okay, so I'll try to keep this succinct because I know that we have so much that we want to get, get into today. Yeah. In the early days of the pandemic, my goodness, when we did our last episode, it was right before the pandemic, right? Yep, on on the dot. Unbelievable. So literally that week, 
after the Ontario government began locking society down, essentially, and, and world governments around the world were shutting down their countries and their provinces and states, I, I had this desire to really be close to my parents because I knew that this would be very, this would be, this would be a turning point in their lives, even if they didn't process it immediately. And so I decided to spend some time with them and I, I was at their house and what happened very early in the pandemic, I think just probably two or three days later after March 11th, my dad throughout dinner was very fidgety and anxious. And, you know, he kept on remarking at the growing number of cases. And, you know, I've never seen my dad this, this, this sort of worried and stressed and discompobulated. You could tell that he was losing sleep over what had happened. Anyways, uh, my mom goes to bed early. My dad and I are hanging out downstairs in the living room. And uh, it's one o'clock. My dad was asleep. He wakes up from his sleep in a bit of a stupor. And, uh, you know, he looks at me, he's like, oh, you're still here? I'm like, yeah, dad, I just wanted to make sure you're okay, you know, go to sleep. Uh, it's late, I'll see you in the morning. He's like, okay, okay, yeah, no problem, no problem, good night. He goes to the kitchen and uh, he starts doing the dishes at one in the morning. I'm like, what? what's going on here? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And I kept on thinking back to that analogy of organizing the deck chairs on the Titanic, you know, just wanting to do something that felt comfortable, something that felt like you had some purpose in a world that was clearly telling you quite the opposite. Except he's doing the dishes and it's going on for a long time. I'm like, wow, he's been there for like 15, 20 minutes. This doesn't make any sense. Hey, dad, you should go upstairs, go to sleep. He's like, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Nearly half an hour passes. And uh, I'm like, okay, this is really bizarre. And then I hear a thud and a clink of a glass on the floor. And I'm like, what? 1.30 in the morning, I run into the kitchen, Kelly. And I'm not going to lie, uh, my whole life flashed before me. That expression became real for me. I saw my dad on the floor having a full-blown seizure. His body had turned stone white, staring up at the ceiling, shaking. I can't even um, imagine. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, one of the most traumatic things I've ever experienced. I, I genuinely thought in that moment, my dad died. So what happened to me in that moment was known as the amygdala hijack. And for the listeners who are not familiar with this, there's a part of your brain known as the amygdala, which is responsible for stress responses, flight, fight, or freeze. When you're faced with sudden adversity, your amygdala sends blood to your extremities. It takes it away from the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain required for creativity, planning, and complex decision-making. Basically, it makes you stupid in the moment and sends blood everywhere else so that you can be ready and prepared for whatever threat you're being faced with. I had an out-of-body experience, but that was also a very deeply in-body experience. My, my, my mind booted up a program that I didn't know I had. The first words that flashed across my dashboard, Kelly, were, this is it, this is the moment, now what? And I automatically moved into a process of administering some sort of care to my dad that I had probably picked up from TV shows, my time in the Canadian Armed Forces. I mean, I was going through the motions of almost preparing myself to conduct CPR on my dad, a skill that I could not tell you what that looks like right now. But in that moment, the dormant program booted up. So how did this tie into Leadership Reinvented? I promise I'll bring this all together. That experience caused me to look at the global response to COVID-19 very differently. I started to look at leaders, corporate, government, and social alike, and see the decisions that they were making in a different light. They were making decisions under great duress, under great unexpected adversity of the highest order. Mm -hmm. So, you know, news articles and on social media and, and, and talking heads on TV were saying, yeah, these leaders are stepping up. And I was like, no, 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 they're not stepping up. 
what's actually happening is they're sinking to the level of their training and character. They are becoming in this moment of adversity who they always were. And it had nothing to do with some newfound knowledge or skill that they learned. Everybody is stressed out of their minds. You are seeing Jacinda Ardern, you are seeing Justin Trudeau, you are seeing uh, Donald Trump and Yair Bolsonaro and all the world leaders, all the corporate leaders behaving in the only way that they know how. So that led me to the conclusion that if leaders aren't stepping up, if what's really happening is other leaders are falling back and they're standing out, that means that these leaders were ready for the moment, even if they didn't know that it would be COVID-19, that they were preparing themselves well in advance for the moment. And then the, the impetus to write the book came from a tweet that I saw from Naval Ravikant, uh, founder of Angelus, who tweeted, I'm going to try to recall this to the best of my ability, leadership in the coming months at every level is the audition to lead in the coming years. Yeah, that's it. Leadership in the coming months at every level is the audition to lead in the coming years. As soon as I saw that, I said, Boom, here's the idea. We need to now talk about post-pandemic leadership. What are the skills that leaders need to invest in today, as in 2020, 2021, for the foreseeable future so that when the next inevitable thing happens, that they're ready to stand out because they're not going to be able to step up. All they can do, all they can hope to do is stand out. So that was my long roundabout way of explaining how I personally began to get invested in the study of leadership, specifically change, uh, leadership through change, leadership through adversity, but uh, post-pandemic leadership. And it's also affected the workplace. Uh, you Absolutely. Know, some companies were prepared for this, some companies weren't. Okay. And so I have a question for you because sure. as a modern leader, you, you have a track record of leading high-performing teams at both startups and large corporations. What value or main value do you believe has led to the success of your leadership? Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm still very much in the process of reinventing myself as a leader. I don't think that uh, if I had to give myself a, a letter grade, I'd probably give myself a B minus. I have a long way to go, a lot to learn. And so in writing this book, I effectively wrote a book that I think I would need more than anyone else, something that I hope to continue reading and learning and growing from. With that being said, there's four values that I speak about in the book, the value of servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy. The one that I connect with the most is the latter, empathy. I've always felt like a powerless outsider no matter where I was. And so I've learned to recognize that in other people too. I think I have an instinct where I can look into another people, person's eyes and hear them speak about themselves and, and hone in on specific words to understand that this is a person who also feels like they're on the outside. I mean, as a kid, <clears throat> I was a gangly, acne-ridden, awkward loner, if you will. And as an adult, riddled with imposter syndrome. Even now, I mean, I feel tremendous imposter syndrome, even though it's my third time on Millennial Minimalist. I'm like, wow, what? Well, I have no business being on this podcast. I mean, they, they have such great guests like Nir Eyal and I mean, oh my goodness. But here I am. I've also cloaked mental health challenges all throughout my, my life. I've always felt like an other by way of maybe skin color, the neighborhood that I grew up in, my socioeconomic status. To cope with these feelings of otherness, I think I became invested in the creative arts. And the creative arts initially was a way for me to make meaning of my experiences at first, but then it allowed me to understand the perspectives of other people and get to see the world and experience the world through their context. And I love this quote by Alfred Adler. I think I'm going to get it right. Empathy is seeing with the eyes of another. Empathy is seeing with the eyes of another, listening with the ears of another, and feeling with the heart of another. Oh. And so in the workplace, 
how does that manifest? Uh, you know, that, that manifests as active listening. It's also about deepening and, and creating genuine connections. It's about truly trying to understand the other people in the organizations and, and benching your ego, to borrow a phrase from one of the subjects of the book, Phil Jackson, coach of the uh, Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles, Los Angeles Lakers, benching your ego and creating space for other people, allowing other people to have a seat at the table, allowing their voice to be heard and, and taking what they have to say seriously. So that would be my value. As a friend of yours, I can say that every time I connect with you, it feels like you are listening and you're fully present and that you see me when I'm speaking and it's, it's a wonderful quality. And I could only imagine the students who work with you or those who report to you feel the exact same way. And that's oh, and likewise, so, my friend. That's so important because if I was working for you, that would make me want to be in that office or even working remotely these days. Like I would want to be a part of your team because I would feel seen. And I think that's so oh, wow. important in organization. That uh, I can't tell you how much that means to me. That's, uh, that's the ultimate validation that you've given me, Kelly. You've given me many compliments throughout our friendship. But that's the one that I'm going to come back to more often than not. This is all I know. I, uh, my, my, my lived experience before it got good, it was really bad. And uh, I just remember feeling powerless, feeling on the fringes, feeling like an other, feeling voiceless and not worthy. And uh, I think perhaps I overcompensate for that lack by recognizing it in others and helping to, to big them up, if you will. So thank you. That means, that means more to me than uh, I can succinctly put into words on this podcast. No, absolutely. Actually, even as, as an employee, like I, I want to do that with my colleagues. Like I want to make them feel like I'm fully present and, and aware and I'm a resource for them and they can come to me whenever they they need to. So I think it's also important from an, on an employee level as well to be aware of how you're carrying those values through. Uh, so for me, I see your work, Leadership Reinvented, as an essential guide to help traditional leaders reinvent their leadership styles for the good of those they lead. And drawing on your experiences leading highly effective teams, what are a couple effective practices that modern leaders or new leaders are implementing into their workplaces today to cultivate happier and healthier cultures. If you could think, if you could just share a couple, that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, let me try to limit my answer to the specific context that listeners will most likely be listening to this in, which is depending on where you are, even in the United States, where, uh, my goodness, I made such great... (laughs) I made such great connections through this podcast with people in the States. And I've actually sent a few advanced copies to some of your listeners who have been around since episode one. So, so thank you. Let me give you three. So the first one, especially right now, if you're a leader and and you want to help your team through this pandemic, uh, improve your one-on-ones. Don't let your one-on-one, first of all, have one-on-ones. The best indicator that a leader is not, behaving in a responsible way with the people that they serve is that uh, if you open their calendar and don't see recurring one-on-ones, that's a very big red flag. If they're not taking the time to connect with the people that they serve in a regular structured way, huge red flag because uh, what is that saying? A budget is a reflection of your priorities and a calendar is a budget of your most important priority, your time, your most valuable resource, your time. And so if you're not allocating hard time towards connecting with your team, big mistake. So do that, you know, half an hour, once a week or uh, bi-weekly, that would be my recommendations. Don't let your one-on-ones 
not happen for more than a month. I think uh, anything, any, if, if, if there's too much time will elapse between your check-ins. Anyways, there's a great tool, Manager Tools. I think the website is managertools.com. That's where I got my template for structuring my one-on-ones. They're 30 minutes. The first 10 minutes is about you. What do you want to talk about? What's on your agenda? And let it be open-ended. If they have no operational updates, that's fine. They can talk about themselves, what's happening in their life, what's stressing them, what's worrying them, any feedback they have for me or the larger organization. The middle 10 minutes are my agenda. So organizational updates, uh, you know, priorities that need to be moved forward or things that we need to rethink, et cetera. The last 10 minutes have to be focused. How do we help you? What kind of barriers can we remove from your path to success? What uh, professional development initiatives are you involved in right now? What is your overall outlook for the future? So these recurring structured one-on-ones will, first of all, allow you to build rapport with your, your team, but also create the expectation that you're moving forward, moving towards something, and you're constantly setting new goals personally and as an organization, and that you're working towards them. It's also an opportunity for you to reaffirm what the uh, mission, vision, values, principles, and purpose of the organization are. So improved one-on-ones, that would be my first recommendation. On the note of structured, uh, structured personal development, professional development, um, insist on it. Your, your employees might not want it. They might think that, hey, I'm okay. I don't have any room or capacity for courses, books, mentorship, and all that. Make it part of their job. Even if you need to carve out time in their day and look at their 40 to 50 hour work week and say, you're dedicating Friday afternoons to learning, right? You're dedicating Tuesday, Tuesday afternoons to listening to a podcast and taking notes and presenting it to the team at the end of the week. Create that expectation amongst your team that they need to continue to learn and grow and improve themselves and hone their technical and soft skills as well. This is part of the servitude chapter of the book, which is about helping your team reach self-actualization. And that nudge needs to come from you. And then finally, Kelly, I'll say now is the time to overhaul our social activities. I think we've all learned the hard way that, you know, happy hours was a very, happy hour was a very limited way of bringing your team together. I think that when we were in the office, we had the luxury of saying it's four o'clock and everybody stop working, meet up in the kitchen, or let's go to this bar and everybody drink. But it doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't work for people, first of all, who don't drink. It doesn't work for people who have dependents that they need to take care of, children, uh, daycare needs, so on and so forth. And then it doesn't allow for the type of bonding that I think is really necessary for organizations because that social activity tends to reward a very specific type of person. Go beyond the happy hour. Think about creative ways to engage your team. I mean, some things that we've done over at Student Life Network, we've, uh, we've, we've explored comedians, magicians, playing board games, online games, lunch and learns, cooking classes even. There's so much that can be done that allows people to feel connected to each other because that's what we need right now. I can't even, I don't, know, I don't think we have enough time to talk about how big of a problem loneliness is right now. I think I read a stat that said one out of yeah. every five young Canadians have no close friends. Unbelievable. One out of five young Canadians have no close friends. There is a, there's an epidemic of loneliness happening, not just in this country, but around the world. So much so, I think, Kelly, you probably saw this. Japan appointed a minister of loneliness to deal with the deaths, specifically suicides, caused by the mental health impact of COVID-19 in Japan. No. That's how bad things are. So the onus is on leaders to create connections between their people. And the easiest solution is just ask your team, what do you want to do? You don't have to force it. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. But know that happy hours once a week is not the answer. You have to get more creative and go beyond that. 
I like that you're incorporating these activities into the workday. So if that's right, in yeah. my calendar during the workday, I'm more likely to accomplish that or get it done. Not see it as work, but see it as falling within my work hours. So I'll actually incorporate it into my lifestyle, my work life. So mm -hmm. that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really great idea. Thank you. Uh, so I actually recently read an article titled Burnout is Real, On the Rise, and Retractable. And it talks about how leaders can step in to prevent work from home burnout and some strategies this article concluded were taking time to acknowledge employees' work, two, scheduling smaller meetings to foster authentic connections, similar to what you, you suggested, and three, encouraging employees to build support networks. Can you add another practice that supports mental health for those working from home, considering what we just spoke about? Yeah, this is, this is actually quite timely. So at the time of this recording, I delivered a keynote to all of the heads of the various associations, corporate and nonprofit in Ontario and beyond. And later this week, I'm delivering a keynote on the same subject for ACOR. So this is the group that uh, has Sofitel, the, um, uh, uh, the Fairmont brands and whatnot, uh, lead, leading luxury hotel and hospitality brand. And in my preparation for these talks, I stumbled upon a study out of Harvard. <laughs> I'm laughing at just how, how, how obvious this was, how, how it was just almost, almost silly in its simplicity. But do you know what the number one predictor for reducing burnout is? So, so the, the, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. The number one indicator, the best predictor for, for reduced burnout scores if you had to guess what that is, Kelly, mm. what would you say? I mean, ideally better and more effective leadership, but oh God. That was my thought as well. That was my thought as well. And this is kind of related, but the best predictor is a manageable workload. Mm. At 50 hours a week of working, uh, the rate of burnout increases. And at 60, it spikes even higher. So the answer is not more hours, it's not more intensity, it's not more projects, it's not more meetings. It's about defining what is truly enough and working within that. Okay. You know, the pandemic workday on average is three hours longer than its pre-pandemic counterpart. And I think oh, a lot yeah. of that is coming from, mm -hmm. I think a lot of that is coming from guilt. I think people like you and I, and a lot of the listeners, were able to get all of our work done in a remarkably short period of time because we don't have the morning commute. We don't have Janet barging into our office wanting to talk about the weekend. We don't have <laughs> distractions. I mean, hey, I love Janet. I don't have a colleague named Janet, but sorry, I, I generalized over there. Yeah, We're just more effective. We're just more productive or just as, if not more so, effective and productive working from home. And then what do we do when after four or five hours, we're like, wow, we're done all our work, I guess. Yes, I should work some more. And that's not the answer because if you're going to work more just to manage the optics of productivity, you're going to burn out. And this is where leaders come in. Leaders need to overall reduce the focus on optics. It shouldn't be about the appearance of busyness. Just because you respond to something in, in a flash does not mean that you're actually moving a project forward. Just because you're more available on a group chat, just because you're participating in the, the, the chat system room where you're talking about nonsense, just because you're active over there, it doesn't actually mean that you're moving work forward in a meaningful way. Sometimes and oftentimes, it's the person who's quiet, who appears on the Zoom chat. Yes, 
asks good questions, moves on, logs responsible tickets, organizes things effectively. At the end of the week, it's their consistency versus other people's intensity that gets things done. They're actually moving the big rocks versus having themselves scattered and then dilapidated by the end of a 50 to 60 hour plus work week. Yeah, exactly. They're being more intentional with their time. They're Bingo. getting in and they're Bingo. getting out. They're using these messenger services with intention. You know, they're speaking to their team when they need to and they're getting out when they when they when they should, right? So Bingo. And and Kelly, let me be let me be perfectly honest and vulnerable with this community of mil- millennial minimalists. Uh, I I feel like when I look at in you know just my organization's chat, we have many chats going on at all all the same time, right? Some talking about sports, I'm talking about movies, I'm talking about just general news updates, and I don't participate in any of them that don't deal with my day-to-day work. I mean, I'll jump in once in a while, but I sometimes am consumed with the worry that, hey, does my team think that I don't care? Does my team think that I'm a my team think that I'm not here? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I feel pressured into doing it, but then I have to remind myself like, hey, you've already got a pretty substantial and heavy workload over here. There's some very real and pressing things that need to be done to move your projects forward. It's okay. It's okay to, it's, I mean, I just need to become more comfortable in my definition of enough. What does enough look like for me? Where can I add the most value? And it comes back to the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, this idea that 80% of results are typically generated by 20% of activities, by 20% of inputs. And so the pandemic for me has been an exercise in finding and learning to accept what that 20% of inputs are for me, where I can add the most value and getting rid of all of the other distractions, getting rid of persistent stress that comes from being reactive. So long story short, Kelly and, and the listeners, the best predictor is a manageable workload, ideally anchored in purpose. Why are you doing all of this? And then how much time can you and energy can you allocate each day and each week to get things done? If you want to reduce burnout, that's the way. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. I also wanted to mention those on the flip side. So those maybe who have kids at home, they're working double duty right now. And so they end up working way longer days because periods of their day are taken away to look after their kids or respond to any other people in their lives, right? And so people are actually working longer for that reason. And others, they just don't know how to set a boundary. They become a workaholic. They just work around the clock. Like, well, what else do I do? So I'll just keep working. Uh, And these are the things that we need to start setting boundaries with ourselves. And, you know, as someone who I've been working, uh, it's an independent contractor for almost three years now, I've been able to develop that skill and, you know, it's easier for me now. So I'm lucky in that sense because having COVID hit, I had to set those boundaries and I've been able to, but a lot of people who have been, always been in a corporate environment and had someone over their shoulder can be a little bit different. Totally. Yeah. Well said. Very well said. So actually in our second interview, we talked about the rise in corporate wellness programs and how these programs have actually been ineffective at improving employee well-being. And we concluded that it's because leaders are not taking part in them. Uh, Do you still think this? Do you believe that these programs will thrive if our leaders become more involved? Yeah, from a leader's perspective, there can't be rules for me and rules for thee. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, the investment has to come from the top and you have to model good behavior. I mean, drawing on the example that you provided in just the previous segment over there, Kelly, let's say that there is a segment of the workforce that identify as parents. They have young children and let's even throw into the mix. People have dependents. They have their elder and ill uh, uh, parents 
living with them at home and they need to take care of them during the workday. You can say the right things on your website. You can have a, a wellness policy. You can have subscriptions to all of the apps and fitness programs. And, you know, you could probably uh, uh, think of all of the different things that, that, you know, we see happening in, in typically organizations that are run by younger people, millennials. The invisible segments of those companies happen to be the people with different lived experiences, thinking about Gen X, thinking about boomers, uh, even thinking about Generation Z. So just looking at it from a millennial perspective, this is where empathy is so important in terms of understanding other people's context, understanding other people's issues, and making sure that you can show up and support them in the way that they need, not in the way that you think they need. And it's about, again, asking the right questions, asking the questions regularly, and then acting on them. And that message again has to come from the top mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we, we, we have to, we have to show that we, we have to show compassion and understanding for, for, for those folks. So mm-hmm. for example, and I know this is a bit of a roundabout because I know you asked about specifically wellness programs, but I think, I think it's worth before just wrapping that idea up, acknowledging that if you have people in your organization, speaking to leaders specifically, if you have people in your organization who have dependents, it is okay for them to leave in the middle of the workday and take care of them. I think anything other than that would be inhumane. Yes. You're essentially saying in that moment, don't take care of your kids. Don't take care of your sick mother. Instead, finish up that report for me. That's more important. That takes precedent. That's ridiculous. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna hemorrhage talent. You're going to lose the best people. And that style of leadership, avoidant, aggressive, autocratic, has been on, on the way out for a very long time. And mm-hmm. it's going to end with you. you. You are the last of the leaders who will practice that leadership style. I promise you that. Oh, yeah. So be, be more human. Be more patient. Be more understanding. And, and know that in addition to the stresses, we're also dealing with the ambient stressor of a global pandemic. Like now is not the time. Now is yeah. not the time for that, that sort of over the shoulder, breathe down your neck, micromanagement, aggressive, hostile approach to leadership. No. It has never been that time unless you're conscripted. Uh, even then, an argument could be made that that's not effective. But during the global pandemic, come on, let's do better here. So let me wrap up this thought. I took a bit of a detour there. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, improving employee well-being and seeing this rise in corporate wellness programs, the investment has to come from the top and it has to be modeled by the leader. Take breaks. Don't send emails at all hours. Go on vacations, turn your phone off, turn your device off, and please give up on the hero complex because you might be providing all the bells and whistles and all the services to your employees, but if you're not showing them, if you're not modeling behavior, they're not going to use it to the extent that, that, that you want them to. And, and I think this, this was actually shown in the mid-2010s when a study came out, I think mid-2010s, that companies which offered unlimited vacations actually had people banking fewer vacations. People yeah, took fewer exactly. vacations yep. because it was, it was window dressing. The mm-hmm. CEOs were just like, hey, this company has unlimited vacations. Meanwhile, they expect you to work 70-hour work weeks. Correct. Yeah. Inconsistent, right? Mm-hmm. 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 You could also say this about the food programs at certain organizations. Like they feed mm-hmm. you lunch and dinner so that you will stay in the office and continue to work. Tether to your desk. Yeah, that is the, the great irony of, you know, it, it, I remember early days when I was running Splash Effect and just seeing all this sort of lionization of tech founders and CEOs who were running companies. Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, catered lunches at Facebook and we do your laundry and you can stay on campus. I don't know if that's coming from the goodness of Mark Zuckerberg's heart. Let's be honest. Zuck oh. wants you to put in 90-hour work week. Zuck wants you to 
bleed and sweat and cry for Facebook. That's the reason why. Let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. And there goes my speaking opportunities at Facebook. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I'm sure things will improve. So I actually read an article in Harvard Business Review and it's titled What Wellness Programs Don't Do for Workers. And the author concludes that there are steps leaders and organizations can take to build trust with their employees, including getting involved and showing compassion. And I love that so that their programs are seen as authentic workplace elements. And I was like, yes, we need to see them taking initiative or we're not going to because we're not going to feel like we can raise our hand or we can do uh, do things that they're not doing right so. yeah and 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 in, in an organization that has a hero complex you doing the sensible human thing will actually be looked at differently because the people that are closest to the ceo who's not practicing that the leader who's not practicing that will perceive you to be ineffective, perceive you to be weak and think mm-hmm. of you as not a team player. It's, it's such a sinister trick, honestly. Yeah. So in Leadership Reinvented, you detail four core values that effective leaders and organizations can possess that you called S-I-D-E, SIDE. SIDE. Which stands for servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy. Can you brief each value and give one example of a corporate leader who has embraced these, what you call bright side values? Hello, Kelly, first of all, you have such a, such a great way of asking these questions that teases out the best answers. I think you really, you have, you have a gift. You, you get to the heart of the question. So, so thank you. I'm always, I'm always challenged by, by, our, by our interviews. And, and I, I hope that the interview is better for it and that the listeners get, get a lot from it. So servitude. Servitude anchored in the concept of, of servant leadership. It's truly about making the people around you better, about being a coach, not being a player, but being on the sidelines and cheering people on and helping them grow and learn and achieve satisfaction and fulfillment. One of the case studies in the heart of the servitude section of the book is Phil Jackson, who I alluded, alluded to earlier, legendary NBA coach who coached the Michael Jackson-led Chicago Bulls. Uh, led them to repeat victories and championships. And his philosophy was really rooted in indigenous spiritual practices, idea of the, the, the collective over the individual, benching your ego, one breath, just, just a, such, a, such a forward-thinking leader whose, whose lessons are only maturing over time and, and becoming more timely and relevant. And the evidence of his effectiveness, because some people might be listening to this and thinking, oh, but he had Michael Jordan. And of course, he was going to be fine. Well, no, no, he went and coached a dysfunctional Los Angeles Lakers with Kobe Bryant and was able to get and replicate that success and get them to win back-to-back championships as well. So, so servitude is, again, all about helping all the individuals on the team to see beyond themselves. But the way that they see beyond themselves and work together as a team is if they can simultaneously achieve self-actualization. So that's servitude. Innovation is the ability to predict and realize the future. Mm. It's about thinking up new ideas, about sort of skating to where the proverbial puck will be. So the example that I use is Sachin Adela, the current CEO of Microsoft, who abandoned the cutthroat, almost uh, frat-like style of running Microsoft that was very much at, at, at the core of how Steve Ballmer read it, his predecessor. I, uh, I shared a post on social media recently, an excerpt from chapter six of the book. And one of the videos that I found in researching Leadership Reinvented was a video of Steve Ballmer 
Uh, and I think it's called Steve Ballmer Laughs at iPhone. And it's a very short video where okay. somebody tells him in the middle of an interview about Steve Jobs' forthcoming innovation, the iPhone. And Steve Ballmer laughs at it and he dismisses it. Now you tell me how the Microsoft phone is doing all these years later, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Non-existent. Um, unlike Bomber, such as focused on the future, he gets real about the competition and he's actively disrupting the company, but not just its products. He's actually disrupting the heart of the company. He's, he's causing, he's, he's forcing the culture. He's encouraging and nudging the culture to be focused on breaking the innovator's dilemma. And the innovator's dilemma is this, do you solve for today's customers or do you solve for tomorrow's customers? It makes more sense if you are reducing your aperture to solve for today's customers, but that will almost always come at the expense of solving for tomorrow. And so such as really great at thinking about the future. Then comes diversity. Diversity is, well, and, you, and you, when you speak about diversity, you also have to speak about inclusion. Both mm -hmm. go hand in hand. If diversity is inviting people to the dance, then inclusion is asking them to dance. Mm -hmm. um, and when we speak about diversity, we're not just talking about diversity of, of, of skin color and diversity of country and um, race, nationality. We're talking about diversity of age, ability, diversity of experience, background, recognizing that the human spectrum is just that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very gradiated rainbow that unfortunately leaders are not fully activating. You have these diverse workforces, but you're not getting the best out of them. And the example that I open up the chapter on diversity with is uh, the NFL dropping the ball, quite literally, with Colin Kaepernick and how they had an opportunity with the Super Bowl halftime show after Colin Kaepernick to really score with Black America and to heal a racial divide, but they didn't do that. They reached out to Jay-Z, Jay-Z declined. They reached out to Cardi B, Cardi B declined. They reached out to Rihanna and Rihanna declined. The three biggest stars at the time declined. And who did they get instead? No disrespect, Maroon 5. Mm. And, and Maroon 5's halftime show was considered the worst halftime shows of all time. Enter Jay-Z. Jay-Z, inspired by Colin Kaepernick, says, hey, Roger Goodell, president or, or leader of the, the, the NFL, we need to talk. Let's build a bridge. Let's create an initiative whereby we, as the vanguards of the culture, as people in the culture who don't think like your very homogenous team over here can really resonate and speak to America as a whole. If the halftime show is sort of this beacon for the rest of the world in terms of understanding how America is thinking and feeling, who better to program it than somebody who has their finger on the pulse of the culture? So on the one hand, you have Jay-Z and Rock Nation programming the NFL halftime show, but at the same time, they're getting the NFL to commit to racial injustice, uh, to healing, to, 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 to solving racial injustice, uh, in, in, uh, problems around inequality, racism, investing in community efforts. I mean, the NFL's financial commitment alone is greater than several of the other leagues combined when it comes to putting their money where their mouth is. And so I thought that was a really interesting example. Yeah. And then finally, empathy, uh, coming back to the Jacob, the Adler quote that I shared from, sorry, the Alfred, I was going to say somebody else. Uh, the Alfred Adler quote from earlier, empathy is seeing with the eyes of another, listening with the ears of another, and feeling with the heart of another. The example that I give real quick uh, in that is Dara Khosrow-Shahi, the new CEO of Uber, who completely turned the company around when its previous CEO, Travis Kalanick, was running it into the ground. Travis Kalanick, you know, the, the, the great book about him and his downfall called Super Pumped, talked about the early days of Uber, very aggressive, very much a bro culture, almost the epitome of the Silicon Valley bro culture. Um, 
was it got so bad that that a video came out on Bloomberg, I believe, that showed Travis insulting and getting into a fiery debate with one of his Uber drivers who was complaining that the service wasn't friendly to its drivers. And Travis was just dressing him down and, I mean, just reeking of privilege in that moment. The, the, the stock price was plummeting. It was just a bad scene all around. Then comes in this new empathetic CEO who also understood what it felt like to not have power, was able to uh, truly understand what needed to be done, which is talk to the employees, listen to the customers, get a pulse of what's happening in the world and heal the company, improve it and make it a more empathetic and open company. So those are just four examples that I cover in Leadership Reinvented across the side values, the bright side values. And there's so much more in the book. It's, it's, it's jam-packed with many more stories. I feel like I'm not doing the book a great service over here by only oh. sharing four, but I also realize that our time is limited. Oh no, you absolutely have. I mean, I mean, I actually have a little quote from you in your book. You said that leaders with side values anticipate and prepare for changes long before they happen. So true. So, you also, so true. You also mentioned um, Eric uh, Yuan, CEO and founder of Zoom. Yeah. Top of mind of a lot of people and is enabling us to communicate right now, which is great. Right. The social <laughs> network of the pandemic. Exactly. And this platform was originally, you know, a corporate video platform. And now it's a global communication program. You know, we, we connect with our friends and family on this platform. Yep. But they actually had a software security issue. And uh, you talk about briefly about how he was very open and honest in his response and he showed like that humanistic nature that really really helped them you know go through get through this this issue and and move forward for the better and kelly what's interesting it's not like he conjured up that response in the moment i mean how could he the amygdala hijack happened imagine being eric yuan getting that uh feedback from your head of communications being like this happened oh my god you're stressed you're panicking the prefrontal cortex is depleted of the blood. You're not able to think, you're not able to plan, you're not able to respond creatively. All you do is you sink back to the level of your training and your character. But fortunately, Eric Yuan had been investing in the value of empathy so that when he did respond in a stressed out state, it was still the right answer. Yes, exactly. So you actually describe the essence of new leadership as human-centric, change-friendly, self-destructing, and values-driven. And you give example to modern leader Jack Walsh, the former chairman of General Electric, for those who don't know, who had a change-friendly mindset. And you give examples of new leaders who exemplify these qualities, including Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, and Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. Now, I'm hoping you can give an example of another leader who succeeds at possessing these qualities and a leader who has failed to possess these qualities to show why these qualities of a leader are so imperative, especially when it comes to company culture and keeping their employees like happy and healthy. Oh man, I, I'm going to have to be very disciplined with this answer. Let me start in the opposite order, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Kelly, let me start with a bad leader and then go into a good leader. And actually, fun fact, halfway through writing Leadership Reinvented, the working title of the book was called First Time Leader, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Before it got turned into Leadership Reinvented, it was called First Time Leader. And in the beginning, there was a version of the book that only had two case studies running parallel. And so we would still explore the bright side values, but we would jump from story A to story B. And I think you're going to like this. Story A was Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. Okay. And story B was Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand. Amazing. So there was a version of this book that was really, really just really woven around these two narratives. So why did I pick these two? Both roughly the same age, 
both started their respective careers, one with Theranos and one in New Zealand politics, around the same time, both experienced a massive surge of attention and popularity and success very early on, but then they both went in two different directions. And their evolution mimics almost to a T the typical organizational life cycle. So an organization is introduced, it experiences a surge of popularity and attention, then it grows, then it matures, and then it has to decide one of two things. Once it reaches the top of that peak, it has to either renew itself or decline. Those are the only two options. Elizabeth Holmes chose to decline. Jacinda Ardern chose to renew. This is why Elizabeth Holmes failed. So the counter to the bright side values is known as the dark triad. The dark triad are a series of three traits that leaders have, unfortunately. And if they let those traits consume them, they are absolutely going to run the organization into the ground. Narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. So narcissism is obsession with self-image. Machiavellianism is callous strategizing. And, and psychopathy is a lack of conscience. So wow. Elizabeth Holm had all three in droves. And then as a corollary to the dark triad, there's another model known as the toxic triangle. So the toxic triangle has three sides, the top the, or three vertex, vertices. The, the first vertice has the dark triad leader at the top. Then you have susceptible followers. So these are the people that prop up the toxic leader's traits, and they're either conformers, so people who just do whatever the leader wants, and then there's people who actively are psychophants around this leader, just telling them what they need to hear and helping them and supporting them. And then on the other side, the third vertex is conducive environment, and this is instability, perceived threat, questionable values in the absence of government. So that's why Elizabeth Holmes was so wholly unprepared for when there was scrutiny about Theranos, when Theranos was failing to, 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 to investor expectations, when Theranos was getting bad publicity, when whistleblowers came out of the woodwork, when all of this adversity presented itself, instead of defaulting to the bright side values, because Elizabeth Holmes apparently had none, instead became more narcissistic, more Machiavellian, and mm -hmm. leaned into the psychopathic characteristics. Which then in turn, if we're thinking about the toxic triangle, inflamed the conformers, inflamed the colluders, and only created more volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. So the organization, Theranos, fell into disarray and Elizabeth Holmes did not know what to do because when she defaulted back in the moment of adversity to her character and her level of training, it was not sufficient to cross the chasm of time. And then it went top but, down. I mean, it looked and like- And then it went like, top down. Yeah, micromanaging, uh, she was oh. isolating, she lacked trust. These, these are some of the words that you used in your book. So. Like, like straight up lying. I mean, there's a documentary called The Founder on HBO and they talk in that, uh, uh, in that documentary. And I think this is also on the ABC or NBC podcast. I can't remember. Uh, they talked about how Elizabeth Holmes would conjure up two worlds. There was the tiled world and the carpeted world. In the tiled world, if you were a scientist working in the labs, you had one version of reality. And in the carpeted world that's in her office, she would spin you this image and this aspirational nature of the company that would change your mind. Anyways, I, I, feel, I feel bad. She's not here to defend herself. No, She's in I know. court right now. <laughs> she, can, she can reinvent herself. <laughs> she needs, yeah, you know what? Hey, Elizabeth, uh, have, have your PR people reach out to us. We'll send you a copy. Uh, hope it helps. Um, Jacinda Ardern, on the other hand. My goodness, where do we even start? Jacinda Ardern, to me, was the biggest muse of the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She, uh, 
she exudes the bright side value, servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy. And you can see this. I'm just going to rattle off a couple of experiences that she had very recently in which she would have been stressed naturally, but reacted to it in a way that is befitting of a masterclass. When the Christchurch mosque shooting happened, the first reaction was to go and be with the survivors, to go and be with the family, to then boldly say that all New Zealanders are one and that the person who killed them is not one of us. There's you who inflicted this violence against us and then there's us and we were, we're not going to let you overwhelm us. And she swiftly did what several world leaders have yet to do, which is she banned military-grade weapons overnight. Yeah, overnight. It's amazing. Overnight. And, and for Over, those who don't know, thing. yeah, and for those who don't know, she's uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand, exactly, exactly. Uh, what's another situation that happened? My goodness, uh, there, was a, there was a volcano that erupted. Her first reaction was not to send a deputy, not to put out a tweet about it, not to, to show up on Twitter at three o'clock in the morning and say that uh, Obama was responsible for the volcano erupting. Nope. She got on a helicopter, canceled all her meetings, went right to the goddamn volcano and said, I got to be with my people. Wow. Gets it done. She gets it done. And my favorite one, this is a, a bit of a, a, a teaser for those of you who are going to get the book. How I end the book is with my favorite anecdote about Jacinda Ardern. She's in an interview on TV and she's in the parliament and an earthquake happens live, a 5.8 magnitude earthquake. I challenge you to see even a hint of fear in her eyes. She is so composed, so jovial. She says, oh, we're just having a little bit of a shake here. <laughs> and, and, and man, the, the interviewer is freaking out. He's like, uh, Madam President, are you okay? Oh yeah, I'm in a structurally sound place. I'm not under any lights. We're gonna be okay, how are you? Unbelievable. Talk about readiness for change and preparedness for adversity. Sudden, literally an earthquake happening in her home zone. I mean, wow. she, she is the definition of change. And uh, I worry, I worry so much because you know, I, I get it, we're, we're, we're showering her with praise and there's articles that say she's the most effective leader on the planet. But as we know, you know, all our heroes are fallible and she's one scandal away from shattering this image. But if I had to bet on any world leader, any leader period, who's probably going to be just fine, it's gonna be Jacinda. I think Jacinda's gonna have the run of all runs and we're gonna look back at her in history and say, that was the most effective leader on the planet. Why, why, why didn't we hand over the keys to the world to Ms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's funny, when you mentioned her in your book, I thought, oh gosh, that's the one leader that really stands out to me from all my- Never seen anything like it. Never seen anything like it. It's a, a masterclass. It would be an honor. I mean, I, I don't know what would happen. I would, I, if, if I found out that Jacinda had the book and if anyone's close to Jacinda and can give her the copy of the book, and I'm ready to die. Yeah, I'm ready to go to heaven after that. I'm good. My, my yeah. life is done. Yeah. My life's work is done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as you know, I just interviewed best-selling author Nir Al, who wrote mm -hmm. the book Indistractable. And he explains that workplace distraction and burnout is a company culture issue. So agreeing with you on that. He says, quote, the problem of distraction at work is caused by our inability to talk about distraction at work. In other words, employees don't feel like they can speak up. Uh, and he gives, he gives examples to how some companies do have this issue. 
and others who have reinvented themselves to become what he calls an indistractable company culture. And he gives an example of Slack, uh, so the messaging service. So he gives an example to them as a company that has always had an indistractable company culture because their leaders have instilled work-life balance. And he explained that he went to their office and the first thing he sees in their office is this massive sign that says, work hard and go home. So basically uh, says like, work hard guys, wow. go home when you need to, don't work, don't yes. overwork yourself. And like, he yes. is, I love that. It's amazing. And then on the flip side, he gave an example of Boston Consulting Group, which many of us who know about BCG, it's a company known for terrible burnout and high turnover. But over the, over the past few years, the company has since reinvented their leadership and is thriving because they've been setting boundaries with their workload on their employees. And so that was really cool to hear. And he, I think you'll find this interesting, Hamza. He says, an indistractable company culture embodies three traits. And these traits include, one, they give people what they call psychological safety, yep. the ability to talk about these problems in a safe environment. Two, they have a regular forum to talk about these issues. And three, management displays what it's like to be indistractable, or in other words, to set boundaries. I Beautiful. thought that was amazing. Beautiful. Oh my God. I'm, uh, I haven't listened to the episode yet, but I, I'm very excited to listen to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when he was telling me this, these things, I was like, okay, so keeping in mind that BCG is reinventing their leadership, like, would you say, Hamza, that most traditional leaders and organizations today are open to reinventing themselves? And for those reluctant to change, do you believe that they may be forced to in order to prosper? I mean, big question. Oh, huge question. Huge question. Uh, I, I don't even know sort of which vector to approach this answer from. I know what the answer is, and I'm thinking about different ways to approach it. One is from the perspective of remixing the paradigm of live to work to work to live. You know, I think another vector would be these leaders who use the cop out of think like an owner, think like a leader, but you're not really treating your people like leaders or owners. Maybe the best way to approach this answer is just as succinctly as possible. No, no leaders who were caught up in avoidant, aggressive, and autocratic styles of leadership, they don't want to change. They're set in their ways. And in fact, many of them who have studied and who have talked to as well believe that what's happening right now, that this push for servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy, they believe it's a fad. They believe that it's a trend. They believe mm -hmm. it's a phase. They think it's going to come and go. No. It's not. It's not. Because if you think about the business cycle, a business is introduced, it grows, it matures, and then you have to renew or decline. This is true for all organizations. Fortune in 2002, published an article about why companies failed. And the number one reason they found was avoidance, that mm. leaders and companies fail to see the changing world around them. They think that their vantage point at the inside, at the epicenter of the organization is true, but they lose touch. They lose, they lose perspective on how the world around them is changing. Jack Welch, who you alluded to earlier, ex-CEO of General Electric, who, by the way, is the only organization on the Fortune 500 list from its very first issue back in 1917. So the first issue was in 1917. Latest issue would have been 2020, 2021. The only company still on that list, the one and only company, Jack Welch's General Electric. Why? Because Jack 
understood that you have to change before you have to, but said this, one of my favorite quotes about organizational change and just leadership in general, if the rate of change on the outside exceeds the rate of change on the inside, the end is near. Yes. Yes. If the rate of change on the outside exceeds the rate of change on the inside, the end is near. If you hear a leader say, no, that's not what people want, or no, that's not really happening in the market, or yeah, that's the way it's always been done. Red flag, red flag, red flag. Uh, a really humble leader, a forward-thinking, innovative leader, uh, a reinvented leader asks what the people want. We need to find out what our customers or stakeholders, what the members of our country, our, uh, con- uh, our, 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 our constituents want. You know, and then turns to their team and says, what do you think? What do you think? Not I have the answers, not I'm right, not my vision, my pigheadedness about this, like Elizabeth Holmes. That's not the answer because the rate of change on the inside of Theranos was too slow. It was not in sync with the changing world around it. The rate of change in the inside of Theranos and at the center of the organization is always the leader. At the center of the organization was a leader who refused to change, who was so stubborn and caught up in their ways that they failed to see the changing world around them. And here we are. Now we're talking about what? Two books, two documentaries, and a feature film starring Jennifer Lawrence about the downfall of Elizabeth Holmes, 37 years old. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, uh, leaders, consider yourself warned. If you're still practicing an outdated style of leadership, if you're avoidant, if you're aggressive, if you're autocratic, you got to reinvent yourself. I, I don't know what else to tell you. Mm-hmm. So what action steps can new leaders take each day those who are reinvented or are just coming out here with the bright side values, what steps can they take each day to motivate their traditional counterparts to embrace these bright side values? So um, employers be more present than you've ever been. And I'm saying this also to my fellow introverts out there. You might think that, yes, the pandemic is great. get to work from home. Don't have to be seen by my team. And I can only log into meetings when I need to. That's fine, but make sure you're present. Make sure your team knows you're there and invite them to speak to you, invite them to connect with you because they're feeling just as stressed and overwhelmed. Now is not the time to under-communicate. If anything, I think we need to over-communicate. I would consider it a great compliment if my team got sick and tired of hearing from me. If they heard from me too much, if they're like, ah, here goes Hamza again, talking about the mission. Great, fantastic. I would much rather you are over-communicated to than under-communicated because the under-communication will exacerbate anxiety and stress and lead to conditions that'll preheat you for burnout. And now is the time to be more human than you've ever been. Be more empathetic, more compassionate, more patient. Mm -hmm. Folks, regardless of where you work and what you do, if you work at a yoga studio and your job is to turn over a profit by the end of the year, if you work at a large tech firm and your job is to launch a product by the end of the fiscal, if you you are an athlete and you have to get in shape for a certain event, yeah, that's all fine and dandy. That's great. But Really, the only priority that humanity has right now is getting through COVID-19 as a species. That's the only priority. Everything else, stop measuring your employees in terms of did they hit their annual goals and stop, uh, you know, 360s that uh, that force people to feel shittier about themselves because we're already feeling pretty shitty about ourselves. We don't need our bosses telling us that. Everybody knows it. You know it too as a boss, as a leader. You're not at your best. I'm not at my best. It's okay to not be okay right now. So that would be my advice to employers. No, absolutely. And ask people how their day is, how life is outside of work. Like these little questions yeah. that people appreciate so much because sometimes people just get right down to business. And right now it's, 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 yeah, it's troubling to do that. hundred um, percent. And I want to give a shout out to one of my employees, David, who joined the company during the pandemic, who has just really 
been such a delight to work with in terms of helping me rediscover that human element to leadership. You know, some things that David does really well, and this would be my recommendation for anybody who has a boss, who has a leader that is trying their best, uh, be patient with them because they're just as overwhelmed as everyone else, if not more so. Check in with them. You know, they're so busy trying to take care of everyone, but no one besides their friends or family asks them, asks us how we're doing. And so it's really nice and refreshing when people that we serve can see in our eyes that we're going through it as well and ask us how we're doing. And they're not satisfied with, a, I'm good, I'm great. They're like, yeah, how are you really doing though? And uh, if you can, if you have capacity, and I know that you probably don't, step up because we could use some help. Absolutely, absolutely. So looking into the next few years, do you predict a future of leadership that fosters happier and healthier company cultures? The hesitation in my voice. I just, uh, a pattern hasn't established itself. These styles of leadership, the avoidant, autocratic, aggressive, the dark triad, the toxic triangle, they're still alive. They're still out there. They're still, you know, operating sometimes within the within the within the realm of forgiveness. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna make a declaration here on episode three or our third episode together on millennial minimalists. I am optimistic about the future. I do think that that old, outdated style of leadership is breathing its last breath. And the demand for a better style, the bright side of leadership is coming from younger generations, as well as people who have been traditionally underrepresented, if not intentionally excluded from leadership. I'm talking about women in leadership. I'm talking about the LGBTQIA community in leadership. I'm talking about people of color in leadership. And the zeitgeist is demanding it. I mean, you saw just this past summer how, how loud and effective the Black Lives Movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was Absolutely. towards uh, uh, creating a, a, a fire of consciousness or, or fanning a fire of consciousness that became a conflagration. So I think, I think change is coming. And, and specific to that, 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 that forthcoming change, I do think that businesses are also responding to it well, Kelly. So there's mm-hmm. a thing that happens annually called the Business Roundtable, and it's made up of leaders from the likes of Apple, Walmart, I mean, the most successful and profitable companies. They too are advocating for a new system that is focused on more than just shareholder value. They're focused on employees, yes. they're focused on customers, they're focused on communities, the environment, and the planet as a whole. They're going beyond a style of leadership that previously typically only rewarded economic self-interest and shareholders to something different to leadership reinvented well said i'm hopeful that change will happen because self-care cannot cure all when it comes to burnout and you know um coping with mental health issues like as we spoke about in our first two conversations about how we can manage burnout on our own you know this is this is the area we can't manage on our own. And we need more effective leadership in order to have a happier and healthier work culture. And so, you know, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing a lot of change right now in my circle. And I've, I've spoken to a lot of my friends. They're also seeing changes. You know, people are speaking up. Leaders are, are changing. But there are still those traditional leaders that are stuck in their ways and aren't changing. And the hope is that they'll recognize these organizations and leaders who are reinventing themselves and those who have just always been like that and how successful they've been. Again, your, your book is so incredible like in terms of a resource for this because we need this so much right now. And wow. maybe you're, you're right at the start of this. 
right? Your book is, mm-hmm. is at the start mm-hmm. of this, you know, it's not the next five years. It might be that over the next decade that we right. see change. And so, so anyway, so that's the hope. Wow. I, uh, thank you. That I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that. I think I experienced a bit of a, a postpartum downturn after publishing the book where it's out in the world right now. And I'm worried if people are going to resonate with the ideas and, you know, it's still too early because at the time of this recording, the book hasn't been released, but I think at the time of publishing, it will be out in the world. And if other people are able to get even a fraction of what you've been getting from it, Kelly, I think we're in good shape. And, and I'm confident that the world will move in the directions that we've touched upon in this podcast. And certainly you succinctly wrapped up with, with, your, with your optimistic outlook back there. Thank you. Yes, that yes. a lot. Well, uh, thank you so much for today. Oh, Such an engaging discussion. Honestly, like every time I speak with, every time I speak with you, I want to press record. <laughs> so I'm glad we were able to do that today. <laughs> so, to close, so to close our, our conversation, where can our audience find you? Yes, uh, you can find me at hamzakhan.ca, H-A-M-Z-A-K-H-A-N.ca. That's my website. I'm most active on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm at Hamza K everywhere. But the fastest way to find my links is just hamzak.com. That'll take you to a bunch of quick links with regards to where I'm at in terms of social media, my mailing list, all of that. And at the top of that link, you will find leadershipreinvented.co, the new website where you can get a free chapter of my forthcoming book, Leadership Reinvented. And if you like what you read and you want to go ahead and purchase the book on Kindle or get a, get a hard copy of it, it is going to be available anywhere books are sold. So that would be the best place to connect. And please, please, I love this community so much. You've been so great to me. Uh, Kelly, Lauren, I mean, thank you so much for, for introducing me to the Millennial Minimalists, for bringing me in for not just one, not just two, but three episodes. And hopefully this will not be the last. Uh, I love talking to all of the listeners. You have such a, the best community, truly. I mean, this Aww, is, thank you this so. is fun every time. So thank you. This is an absolute honor. Can't wait to do this again. Me too. Thank you so much. And lastly, one little note on your website, you have a TED talk titled Stop Managing and Start Leading. It is so well done. It's back in 2015. 2015. <laughs> and that is the, that is the talk that, uh, that planted the seed that became Leadership Reinvented the book. Which is so beautiful. They're great companions. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, thanks again, Hamza, and we're going to have to talk to you this time next year. <laughs> Let's do it. Thank All you. right, thanks again. Thanks, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with author Hamza Khan. And if you'd like to learn more about the topic of burnout, including the 12 stages and strategies on how to avoid and manage symptoms, I highly recommend you listen back to our first two episodes with Hamza. The first being episode 56 titled, Let's Talk About Burnout. And the second episode 70 titled, Let's Talk About Burnout Again. And if you'd like to learn more about Hamza and his works, you can find links to his website, his talk, and his books, The Burnout Gamble and Leadership Reinvented in our show notes. And lastly, you can follow us on social at Millennial Minimalist on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, if you're enjoying our show, please kindly subscribe and rate and review our podcast on iTunes. I want to thank all of you who have already left us kind five-star reviews as we read them all and your words really keep us super motivated and help us bring on more exciting guests. Thanks again for listening in and I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.